Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastic. The concept of equality has been with us since the founding of the United States. And it's been revised and fought over and debated for about as long, from the Civil War and the 14th Amendment to the culture wars and the legalization of same-sex marriage. But not every time that an argument for equality has been brought up in a court of law has it gone well. In fact, a lot of the time, equality arguments backfire and end up affirming inequality. Think of Dred Scott versus Sanford, Plessy versus Ferguson, Korematsu versus United States, or just last year, Trump versus Hawaii. And losing the battle for an abstract concept like equality in court has real concrete ramifications for people on the ground, from trans soldiers in the military to Iranian kids seeking life-saving medical treatment. But there might be a backdoor to equality, a way to fight for equal treatment under the law without sending current ones backsliding. That's what American University law professor Robert Tsai argues in his new book, Practical Equality, Forging Justice in a Divided Nation. He's interested in sidestepping the sometimes fraught moral territory of equality and looking for alternative arguments for fair treatment. Robert Tsai joins us in the studio to talk about how to argue for practical equality. Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So I want you to start by defining what practical equality means for you in this book, because I can see reading these two words together as like, oh, that's practically equality. Why gun for real equality when you're like almost there? Right. This is this is a great question. I certainly don't want to uh, set someone up to think that um, there is something called real equality and that what I'm offering is something um, that's sort of a, a, a bad knockoff of the real thing. Um, instead, you know, when, when I talk about practical equality as an idea, I really want to ground the notion of equality and our fight for equality in the, in the tangible harms that vulnerable populations face. One of my examples right off in, uh, the bat in the book um, is I, I dropped the readers uh, right back into that first weekend when President Trump's uh, Muslim travel ban is being implemented. And I really want readers to feel just how how horrible those conditions are, right? You've got Muslim people being pulled off of airplanes. You've got young Muslim children who need, uh, in some cases, life-saving care, who suddenly are being told they cannot get it in the United States. 
And it's an, it's an awful situation. It's chaotic. That's exactly the kind of picture that I want people to have in their minds when they think of practical equality, that once we start there, then we can start to become realistic about reducing those kinds of harms. And I think that if we start there, we will be more open to a wide range of strategies in order to reduce those harms and not just be wedded to one kind of an argument about, um, you know, who deserves equality, for example. Okay. So, I mean, how can an argument on the basis of equality backfire? I mean, wouldn't that always be the first thing you want to argue that like all people should be treated equally? So Yeah, that's right. That that when you ask people on the streets if they believe in equality in the abstract, you're going to get about a 100% response, right? That everybody loves equality. They cherish the idea. They believe in it. But in reality, when we get down to brass tacks, when we get down to the floor level, um, we'll see that we start to really uh, break down. Lots of disagreement in terms of what I talk about as the practical consequences of equality. And there's almost like a, a human insight here, I think, that I'm trying to build off of, which is that um, the notion of equality as a universal idea is a powerful moral idea, and and that's one of the great things about it. But it also becomes one of the major impediments to getting real things accomplished um, in the world that we live in. We come up with lots of excuses why uh, somebody else shouldn't get the kind of equality that we're all enjoying. And that's true whether we're talking about migrants, uh, whether we're talking about people who've been convicted of serious crimes, or even just suspected of a serious crime. Um, It's also true of transgendered people uh, and other sexual minorities, that we start to get tripped up over a handful of things that I talk about in the book. One of those things is degradation of the social good. Now, that sounds like a fancy term, but but all I'm really saying with that term is, is that one of the things that people really fear about equality in terms of its consequences is that if we embrace someone's claim for equality, that it might change or destroy something valuable in society. So uh, so a good example of this is um, the famous uh, equality case um, involving uh, VMI and um, the demand of some women to attend what had previously been an all-male military academy, right? And, you know, you read the briefs, you read the arguments, and it's it, they make a consistent point here, which is, which is mine. That is that if we let the women into this all-male institution, it's going to utterly change this institution, this social good that they, they value, um, if not destroy it completely. And this is the kind of language that's being used. Um, and this is one of the obstacles that we routinely uh, kind of run into. So how do you get around that stumbling block? What are the arguments that you would make instead? Why are those arguments sometimes better? Yeah, so sometimes they're better and sometimes they're not. So I, I do want to, um, you know, not raise expectations uh, too high and, and suggest that there's a magical formula to equality because there just isn't. Um, the work of equality has always been difficult um, and it's never been about um, trying to get 80 or 90% of the people to accept what you want to believe in. It's about getting just enough people to kind of come to your side and agree that there's like a deep moral harm or that, that, that there's some other way of reducing the injuries that some population has suffered. That's true whether we're talking about the plight of enslaved people, uh, whether we're talking about uh, sexual minorities, 
if you look closely at how activists sort of attack these kinds of problems, they were actually open to a whole broad range of ideas that the equality argument was always there, it was front and center, but often that one took years, if not generations, to really get enough people to sort of move to that position. Uh, one good example of this is Brown versus Board of Education in 1954 that said that uh, segregated schools, racially segregated schools, violated the Equal Protection Clause, that when that decision came down in 1954, barely a majority of Americans supported that. And not only that, you know, you look behind the scenes um, in the oral arguments and the briefs and so forth, that case had to be re-argued because there was a real fear that if they were forced to vote that first time, that at least um, Felix Frankfurter thought that there was a good chance that they would have voted to reconfirm Plessy versus Ferguson, issuing a decision that put the imprimatur of the Supreme Court once again on the side of, of racial segregation would have been disastrous. Um, so luckily they didn't do that. But it is an illustration as well that the work of equality there is just so fragile and requires just one or two people sometimes well-placed in, in places like the court or perhaps in some other institution to really move the ball forward. So I want to talk about Plessy versus Ferguson, because I think that's a good example of what you call a tragic precedent, which luckily Brown v. Board was not, but Plessy versus Ferguson was. So what makes it a tragic precedent, and how would you have argued that case differently to avoid setting it? Yeah, that's a great example of a landmark, a precedent that becomes a kind of monument to inequality, something that not only you know, rejects one person's claim, but really demoralizes people for a long period of time and also establishes a kind of precedent that then enemies of equality can point to and say, hey, look, you know, now we can kind of stop thinking about it, right? I mean, um, let's not worry about this problem for a generation or so. And and to me, Plessy was one of those decisions, right? And, And the Plessy court basically said that this Louisiana law that required trains to be uh, separated according to race did not violate the equality principle of the 14th Amendment. This was a terrible decision. And to me, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to read that opinion without getting like this sickness in your stomach that, that someone could be so blind to sort of the inequity that's involved in something like that. But so you also ask, well, what, what could have been done differently, right? And I think that there were some other possibilities. And so some of my research, kind of the fun part, was sort of seeing whether some of these other arguments could have been historically plausible if they'd just been pushed a little bit harder. And I think there were some arguments that the court didn't entertain, and even a couple that were made in the briefs. I went back and looked at some of the the briefs that the litigants filed, and one of the arguments that could have been made was the idea that, that if a state like Louisiana right, engaged in racial segregation on the railways, that maybe what they were really doing was interfering with Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce, right? And this idea allows courts and perhaps others to sort of sweep away um, state or local regulations that interfere with kind of the free flow of goods and services. And that that's an idea that could have been pursued. And it wouldn't have required casting, you know, any moral aspersions against anybody. So that's one idea. 
Now there was a, there's another possibility, and this this was definitely raised, but sort of obliquely, in Plessy's legal briefs, and that was there was sort of a reference to this older idea of the king's highway. There's a kind of contemporary analog to this idea, which is uh, we call today the right to travel, and that is something actually we accept in the Constitution, and we always have, which is that there is a there is the sense that. If we're going to be an, a national community, we need to think about how state or local regulations that are oppressive can interfere with our rights. Uh, and imagine if different states had different rules, right, in different facilities, right? Just think about how kind of crazy quilt that, that is, and you start to imagine uh, how much that could really burden the right to travel. Yeah. Some of the things you raised in that answer make me want to ask about the McCluskey versus Kemp case, because I think it sort of, um, it shows the limits of the law in a lot of ways, and definitely the limits of an egalitarian argument. In that case, Warren McCluskey was a black man sentenced to death in Georgia for killing a white police officer. And his lawyers made the argument that racial discrimination was used in applying the death penalty. And they argued this with a lot of pretty damning evidence, including a pretty ironclad study that showed that in cross-racial killings, black defendants were sentenced to death at nearly four times the rate of white people. And Justice Powell at one point says he saw the ramifications of McCluskey's equality claim to be pretty revolutionary. He said, petitioner's challenge is no less than to our entire criminal justice system. So all that makes me wonder if you're challenging an institution like the death penalty or slavery or the entire criminal justice system, doesn't Justice Powell's commentary there sort of indicate that the courts might not be your best bet? Yes, it does. Um, f- for those of us who think hard about the concerns of, of, of structural racism, of inequality in this kind of deep institutional sense, McCluskey's case just kind of keeps you awake at night because Justice Powell was kind of a middle-of-the-road person who I think prided himself in being open to all arguments. Um, This is what he would say. And yet, if we looked at the kinds of things that pushed him one way or the other, they were often institutional concerns. And he says, we can't embrace the idea that this study shows that the death penalty in Georgia is implemented in a racially discriminatory fashion. Now, they couldn't come up with a single reason why that study was flawed. They had to come up with reasons why it was irrelevant. And and they did that because he worried that if they embraced the argument that uh, racism infected the implementation of the death penalty in Georgia, that it would change the entire criminal justice system in Georgia, and not just in Georgia, but in every state, that uh, what he worried about was, for example, that somehow there would need to be new constitutional constraints on, say, what prosecutors could do, or we would have to look closer at what juries were deciding. He didn't want to go down this road at all because the worry became one of, of, of too much justice, that, you know, if we embrace this argument, then we might have to go looking for other forms of inequality, right? Not just in the death penalty context. And he says this, right? We're going to have to start looking for inequality all over the place, including um, where the death penalty is not on the table. And so to to close 
the door on that possibility. They closed the door on, on his claim. Um, this is a deeply demoralizing case um, because there really was a complaint here and really a lot of evidence to show that there was racial uh, disparity and it was strong. And it was so strong that you could even make the argument that there was someone who was acting in a very biased way here. Now, they did point out that it wasn't clear exactly, you know, who was the wrongdoer. And, and I think, again, this is an illustration of one of the things I talk about is, is that in the traditional way we talk about equality, we look for we look for obvious wrongdoers because we want to call them out. And they had a hard time doing that here. Is it the prosecutor? Is it the is it the jury members who are racist? Is it the judge in these cases? Well, there's a lot of different judges and there's a lot of different um, jurors and they come and go, right? Never same, the same set of people who are charged with deciding somebody's fate. And we can't figure out where the, where the racism is happening. And so we're just going to say that there's, there's not enough racism to violate the Constitution, you see. So it ends up validating structural racism in the death penalty. And the only way you can prove like a true, like a quality violation in this context is to have a smoking gun. So if in a legal argument like that, you need smoking guns, mm -hmm. and even those guns are only going to help one person, how do you do it? Where do you look for dismantling something like that, if not the court? Yeah, that's that's great. I think that the bigger answer, the most robust answer, is is that federal judges are not the most congenial to these kinds of equality arguments. They're very institutionally conservative. And all of these things that I talk about, the, the, the fear of too much equality, um, you see a lot of this dodging of the consequences of equality on their part. So I think that this really tells us that if we want to do something very powerful uh, in terms of you know, institutional racism, we really have to work from the ground up. We really have to get involved at the local level, m make sure that uh, laws that are that give people too much discretion, prosecutors too much discretion, create too many crimes, that we really stop those from being enacted in the first place, or get people to repeal those laws that really have been kind of misused by prosecutors. You can get active and you can elect different kinds of prosecutors. We're seeing that all over the place, right? Places like Philadelphia and New York, you're seeing a whole generation of prosecutors that have grown up who really take these concerns about uh, over-incarceration, of abuse of discretion on the part of that office, like very seriously. And um, so that's another way to get, I think, involved uh, in ways that really matter. So looking at the measure of all of the cases that we've talked about, on the whole, are arguments like this good for getting reforms on the order of equality rather than like totally changing the system? Yeah. So one of the things that um, I guess some of the questions I, I sometimes get hesitance on the part of um, progressives, people concerned about equality in a deep way is they ask, am I, am I saying that we should give up on kind of the traditional way we talk about equality? Am I, am I saying that we ought to give up on these deep principles that we, we all care about and sort of settle for something, you know, that's half a loaf, something less than that? And I want to I want to just sort of stress that that's not what I'm saying at all. Um, I don't think that you have to to change your deeply committed principles about who deserves equality, 
um, and under what circumstances one bit, that we we have to be able to continue to make those deep, abstract moral arguments because some days those, those arguments might win. But we also got to recognize that along the way, we need to be able to find other effective ways of reducing the pain that vulnerable populations are experiencing. We can't be so committed in the abstract to only one way of winning that we sort of tolerate all the like the tangible forms of inequity along the way. That's just not something that we, we can can do. And so I think we can do both things. These other arguments are sort of like backup plans. They're all additional, you know, wrenches and other sort of weird-looking screwdrivers that we want to throw into the toolbox. And my hope is is that when, you know, friends of equality are walking around trying to solve a problem, they'll look at this book and that this book offers a kind of more complete toolbox for them. There is so much more to talk about in Robert Tsai's new book, Practical Equality, like his take on how American judges handled President Trump's Muslim travel ban. We couldn't possibly talk about it all, but you can read about it. Links in the show notes as ever. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, take care and stay sharp. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.